Wizard of Whiskey presents Swig and Ramble, a podcast for the modern age. Come for the whiskey, stay for the shit show. Introducing Justin Curry at Wizard of Whiskey, Julia Men at the Wee Tipple, and now pour yourself a drink and enjoy the show. I know I will. Welcome back, Ramblers. We have a very special guest today, Andrew Tao, owner of the Withers Winery and Olufsen Icelandic Gin. Now, I had the pleasure of meeting Andrew last year when tasting his absolutely spectacular wines, and since then, he has launched his very own gin brand. We are very excited to have him on the show and learn all about his products, history, and stories. So, Andrew, welcome to Swig and Ramble. Thanks so much. Really nice to see. You. It's been great getting to know you uh, up at the store. And now, now look at us. We're digital pals. Oh, yeah, we are. And I'm so excited to introduce all of our listeners to your fabulous products and just share share the gin and the wine love. I mean, we don't have the wine to taste right now, but uh, they are absolutely spectacular. Um, speaking of drinking, Justin, what's in your glass? And while we're at it, what sours your match today? <clears throat> Well, I am drinking something fairly new. I, I actually invented it. It's called tea. Um, it's it's like if you went outside and took like a bramble or like a bush and then took the leaves and like put them in water. It's, uh-huh. it's that. It's it's leaf soup. So um, I mean, I have leaf soup on a daily basis. Yeah. Welcome to the leaf soup club, my friend. Yeah. And why are you drinking tea? Because I can't. I can't. I caught all of the things on a, on a recent cruise. We were through the Canary Islands, uh, Madeira, left left Portugal. Um, and then when we hit Morocco, I, I wound up catching all of the things um, and uh, was confined to my cabin for the last few few days of the trip. Uh, but I'm, I'm on the mend, drinking a lot of leaf soup, uh, and I'm on all of the meds, so I won't be partaking in gin this morning because number one it's 707 in the morning uh and number two uh I, I need to not die so um as soon as i can i will be tasting uh, what i hear is a fantastic gin and i'm looking forward to that um yeah. I, i'm so glad you're on andrew um we've it's going to be a lot of fun this episode um but to, to the second question which is what sours my mash there's a couple of things um, I was going to go off on this whole rant about international travel and the ugly American and Europeans, but instead, something I never thought I would ever have to complain about, the Dalai Lama. Um, why, why, or why, why? If you don't know what I'm talking about, America, or the world, Google this. Um, apparently, the Dalai Lama assaulted a child I, like on camera. What? Like, Ask him to suck his tongue. I don't. Whoa! Again, I'm, I'm oh, very new to. It. My my wife turned to me and she's like, "The Dalai Lama is a pedophile." I, I tend to believe her because she's like, she calls out everybody. So I'm like, "All right, cool." So then later that yesterday, the story came on the news. I was like, "For fuck's sake, really?" <laughs> so then, while preparing this episode. 11 minutes ago, I came across a second Sours My Mash about Barbie-themed pop-up cafes. And we do not have enough time in the 
planet for me to go off on that bullshit. So I'm going to yeah. hand it off to Andrew. What is, what's in your glass, my friend? And what, what sours your mash? So my <laughs> glass is an Olafsson Icelandic gin. Ooh, uh, very nice. Made with amazing, uh, subtle Icelandic botanicals and the cleanest water the world has to offer on a clear rock because I just bought a, uh, a clear rock maker. I screwed it up uh, three times and then got it almost right. Hey, fourth time's a all the way right. And a tiny little <laughs> twist, not a normal size one, like a half size. So uh, cheers. Cool. Hope you get better soon. Cheers. Thank you. Drink to that. And that's, I'm assuming that's ice and not meth. Whoa. <laughs> that is right. I mean, uh, we're kind of, wild on this show, but we are pretty wild on this show. Wild, I don't think. <laughs> it's only ten in the morning, that. though, so you never know. <laughs> so what's uh, what sours my mash? Um, Yankees fans. Oh. Wow. Uh, I grew like up ten games in the season. We're already we're already going there. Wow. Well, this is a it's, it's a lifetime of of. Uh, I would say hatred, but it's more jealousy, I guess, than anything oh, else. Um, out. Yes, uh, but uh, as a lifelong Mets fan, uh, Yankees fans are already crowing about how good they are. And <laughs> is that the White Sox? That's the White Sox. <laughs> yes. Well, misery can be shared uh, across the country. Oh my! It's a good thing Sandy's not on this episode. He is a diehard Yankees fan, and I guess he's kind of converted me. I really don't care about sports unless it's rugby, in which case, oh, all okay. blacks all the way. But um, so I'd say Yankees fans, and also having spent the last couple of days uh, going around and doing some of the industry stuff, showing our, our wines and our gin. Um, Although everybody we talk to and show our stuff to seems to love it and bring it in. There are a lot of jaded people out there in the world, and I am not one of them. I am an, I wake up uh, in, an, in an optimistic, uh, creative mindset. And when I run across people who don't share that, it uh, doesn't doesn't pop the balloon, but it's, it's a bummer. So... Uh, and particularly in this industry, I run into a lot of them who just uh, think their minds are closed. And and uh, my mind is a lot of things, mostly rocks, but um, rolling around in my otherwise empty skull. But uh, jaded would not be one of those things. So um, I am super open minded and it pisses me off to be around people who aren't. Mm, absolutely. You know what? I'll drink to that. Fuck <laughs> closed minded people. I'm so exhausted. <laughs> And I, and I hear that as a challenge. Mm. We have a full episode. Yeah. Mm. Well, I am <laughs> drinking also Olufsen gin, but I am just drinking it neat. And while it is 10, 12 in the morning, <clears throat> damn, this is easy. This is yeah. beautiful. This was... That's sipping gin. Yeah, that's... I think this might have been kind of one of the first experiences I've had with holy shit, I can just sip this straight. It yeah. is so easy. It's crisp. It's clean. That purity of the water really comes through. The delicate florals and botanicals and that sweet little kiss of citrus. It is just gorgeous. I'm going to have another sip to help me wake up. <laughs> yeah, I, I thank you for those kind words. Um, 
you know, gin, everybody, not everybody, most people I've talked to have, have a, a horrible high school story of whatever spirit they consumed to yep. excess uh, before the prom or, you know, out with their buds or whatever. And um, uh, I had a, I had a bad gin experience when I was in, when I was in, uh, gosh, I think probably ninth or 10th grade. Oh God. And, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, some of my friends came over the house and it was the only booze. My parents didn't drink a lot, uh, but there was stuff in the cabinet and the only one I figured I could replace with water and, uh, make it, make it look like it was what it was, uh, when I left the house was gin and uh, that, that didn't end well for me. So, uh, I took about 20 years off before I had my next one and um, uh, have have never until this one found one that I could actually sip neat like that, uh, whether at 10 in the morning or, or at two in the morning or, you know, at, yeah. uh, cocktail before dinner. So I share your sentiments, not because I have an ego about it, because it, I just I'm honest, like it's the only it's not your grandpa's gin, you know, it's the oh. one that one that tastes or smells like medicine. Uh, oh, yeah. and, uh, this is just, we, we got, we're very fortunate to have the resources, natural resources. I don't mean financial resources to, to put in this drink and, um, and, and make it what it is. Yeah. Something else I really enjoy about it is it's slightly, uh, higher in proof than your regular gin, which is normally at 40%. This is 42%. So not wildly higher, but often in gin, you can taste a little bit of harshness or burn this does not have that at all i hate yeah. using the word smooth so i'm not going to use it but it's very silky with yeah well you could say it's it would be the, the gin haters gin um and the gin lovers gin um because uh it's kind of like our chardonnay it's a uh, um chardonnay is polarizing uh as is gin yep. and um i do wine dinners all the time and I always, when I'm addressing the the group, uh, I serve our Chardonnay usually later on after the Reds. And most importantly, um, I like to ask people what they think about it because I know what the answers are and it's endlessly amusing to me. If you just say, get in a room with 50 people and say, who here hates Chardonnay? About three quarters of the hands will go up. And um uh then i i pour ours and i say okay try this white wine we made and uh see what you think and i ask the same question afterwards and uh while a couple of hands still go up here and there because they're just you know dead set against it um you can change people's minds by doing things that i think in a more natural i guess aspirational inspiring way and not in the typical plotting way and um I think that's true with this gin, uh, very much so. I um, find it refreshing, which I would never have said about gin. It was more, uh, I would say, painful um, for me, even though I've had martinis and whatever else. But uh, this this one I can I can do. And and on the proofing side, when the original um, tests were done, it was done at different proofing levels to see where it and with different waters actually uh to see what the differences might be so it was tested uh, with icelandic water but also other waters from around the world night and day difference because of the 
the cleanliness and purity of the water. Um, but also, uh, it's kind of like blending. When we, uh, uh, we make blended wines, as you know, uh, Julia, and um, and blending is, uh, if you have good ingredients, I guess uh, uh, you're off to a good start. However, you really want to get the to the point where the the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. So it's the same thing um, with blending as it is with proofing. Things that you make just sing a certain way to your own palate. And um, if you stay true to your own palate, then you're at least going to put something out into the universe that you can present and share with conviction. And that's super important to me going to bed at night, knowing that, you know, we're, I'm talking about and selling and presenting a product that I would actually want to buy myself. And that that's sort of my deal with myself to be in this business in the first place. Cause I came at it as a consumer, not as a industry veteran. Yeah. And for all of your experience and knowledge and your passion, that was one of the things I noticed first about you when we met in person is you are so humble, but so enthusiastic and so behind what you do and why, but you don't actually have a background in this industry. So tell us a bit about your history. What did you do before? How did you transition into creating very fine examples of wine and now gin? What What's your story, Andrew? Well, um, my story started at least with respect to wine, um, when I was a ski bum in Vail, Colorado, I I left home. I did a year of college up in, uh, in the tundra up in northern New York at Hamilton College, and uh, which looks like college when you go in there, but it was freezing, and I I couldn't take it. So I did a year there, and it just got in huh. in my brother's uh, hand me down Dodge Dart. Um, and drove west and stopped in Vail to go skiing and didn't leave for two years. <laughs> and um, I lied about my age. It was when you could still um, erase the, the birth date numbers. That um, I'm showing my age. I just turned 64 uh, last Friday. And in the day, you could actually erase uh, the birth year on your driver's license. And so I did that, got a job as a waiter. And uh, lo and behold... Um, I was told a week or two in that I was the top wine selling wait person at the restaurant and the manager <laughs> took me under his wing. Um, he, he also saw me drinking the ends of bottles that were left by, uh, <laughs> by tired skiers who hadn't finished their, uh, their Chardonnay or Cabernet. And I used to stick them on the, on the ledge in the snow outside and drink them uh, <laughs> after the shift. And he saw me doing this and said, Hey, I could see you're into it. Do you want do you want to uh, come to some uh, distributor tastings where we look at wines that we're considering for our wine list? And I said, sure. So I went and uh, I started learning about wine really from wine salespeople um, who were coming in to sell wine to a restaurant that no longer exists in uh, Vail, Colorado called the Watch Hill Oyster Club. Um, I then moved over to a real wine restaurant in Vail, which is still super highly regarded, called Sweet Basil. And that's where I really learned about all the different um, 
uh, different terroir from around the world. We had a real wine expert who was owned the restaurant. He's passed away now, but uh, he was a real mentor to me. So that's how I learned. I was uh, not of legal drinking age and um, and uh, not certainly not legal <laughs> to be serving it either. And uh, I learned in that environment and started collecting wine. Um, and I wasn't buying $5,000 bottles and still don't know if I buy $5,000 bottles. But I, I uh, started collecting wine when I was like 20 years old um, wow. and uh, moved out to Portland, Oregon and just kept building my cellar and eventually uh, settled back on the East Coast and um, have a cellar out here and a cellar out West. And um, it's helped me. It's helped me uh, put a lot of joy into my life as a consumer and cereal sharer and uh, it accidentally got me in the business. So what what was the instigating factor? I, mean, I think it's kind of a, a fair leap to go from passionate wine lover, collector, enthusiast to then opening your own wine brand, <laughs> creating your own wines selling them just making an absolutely standout product his the withers are his lineup of wines and holy crap are they fantastic i mean they are so complex and layered and refined and just exploding with flavor it's i was blown away tasting your wines and to have really no background on the production side of things what pushed you to make that leap well um i'm i'm neither afraid of failure nor shy so as i started collecting wine when i was living in oregon i started to drive down to the napa valley and actually met now icons in the business dan duckhorn who with his wife margaret founded Duckhorn Vineyards. He was working out of a single wide trailer, had just released his first vintage of wines. Um, and I met people like him, Andre Chelichev, who was a winemaker at BV, made the great BV private reserves of the 50s, 60s, 70s. Um, and uh, I kind of cut my teeth um, as as a, an interested party, I guess, by going there and loading up my trunk and um, and putting a bunch of old California wines before Robert Parker uh, wrecked everything, and uh, <laughs> wines that you could drink uh, by themselves and and not have to have a, a Cajun cowboy ribeye steak to to choke it down. So I um, met a lot of winemakers, and uh, at one point, um, after I got into Burgundies quite a bit, I started reading a a very dry. Uh, publication only for Burgundy lovers called Burghound. <laughs> and I would mostly buy it to read his reviews of California wines, uh, which were abusive and and uh, hilarious to me. And so I was used to reading his, his Burghound publications and oddly enough found a winery that he praised. And I thought this is interesting, and it just stuck in my memory bank. And it's a winery called Ant Hill Farms, based out in Sonoma County, California. And so I found a bottle on some wine list at a dinner I was out to in New York, and had it. And I said, "Wow, um, this is beautiful juice, uh, much more old world in style." 
And so I had a trip planned out uh, to wine country and I went to, I reached out to them, went, went to visit, talked to the co-founder who was the winemaker, a guy named David Lowe. And um, uh, I arrived, David was uh, rude to me. Uh, he was washing a barrel out in his welly boots. And, um, but I did sit with uh, one of his partners and ultimately David did come out and, and I thought this is a super smart, interesting guy. And uh, I made it my mission in life to get to know him a little bit and crack, crack the nut. And um, I started taking him to some concerts. I happen to know a bunch of musicians who happen to also be a partners in the winery. Wow. And uh, we spent a lot of late nights together. And I think it was bourbon fueled. It wasn't wine fueled, but we got in a conversation very late at night about things we love to do. And um, I told him I love to fly fish for trout in Montana. And um, he said he always wanted to learn how to do that. I said, well, I always want to learn how to make wine. Why don't we make a trade? And so I brought him to Montana and um, he experienced and fell in love with that. Now comes with us every year. And in return, grapes uh, from some pretty highly regarded vineyards dropped off the back of a truck mysteriously. And um, we got to sort them. We got to press them. We got to put them in barrels that he, uh, he gave to us. And our uh, this was in 2010. And uh, we made a Pinot Noir from a, a pretty highly regarded vineyard called Cerise Vineyard in the Anderson Valley. And um, after, I don't know, eight months or nine months in barrel, we, we, after having just a boatload of fun doing it, we tasted the wine. We're like, holy shit, this is ridiculously good. And um, we also had some wines from a friend of David's that he had sourced out of the Sierra foothills made from Rhone varietals. And uh, they were delicious, a little more rustic in style than, than was my preference, but um they were beautiful in their own right. And so I, um, uh, I, I got to bring some of each of those wines home and started sharing them with people at parties. We have a lot of live music at our house and uh, um, have friends and family and colleagues who are all wine lovers and who I, I've, I've shared with over the years. And uh, when I was pouring our wine, which had no label on it. Um, you know, we bottled it and ah, we, just, ah. we just put uh, Sharpie marks on it with, so we could tell P for Pinot, S for Syrah, M for ah. more. <laughs> and we started serving it around and um, everybody said, what's going on here? This is delicious. Did the label fall off in the refrigerator or something? What, what is it? And uh, where can we buy it? How much does it cost? And I said, oh. no, no, that's our, that's our home brew. That's amazing. What an yeah. amazing, wonderful, cool story. Yeah, yeah, and they, that's what got me the idea to start the winery. I called David, got all excited when we showed our wines around, and he said, don't do it. Everybody loses their money in the wine business. It's super hard. And I said, well, good, I don't have any money. I'm going to call my friends and see if they can help me get started. And then they did. And so we did our first harvest, uh, and I showed the wines that we had made for fun to some top distributors, including Skernick Wines. And lo and behold, we had an opportunity to be a, in the business. Uh, I had a full-time job in Manhattan. I was um, not looking to be in the wine business. It just sort of 
happened completely by accident and uh it was it was a very exciting period and i think our debut was 2014 in the public and um it's been a great ride since then wow <laughs> sorry so for the long ramble there no hey it's called swig and ramble for a reason <laughs> so, i just um, what are what are some of your favorite parts of crafting wine or gin, for that matter? Um, my favorite parts are really doing as little as possible. Um, <laughs> because if you have good uh, raw ingredients and trust your palate and don't try to make something... Um, you're more an enabler, I guess, uh, in that you're just presenting what is the most natural product you can. That is as unmanipulated as possible. And it is what it is. And while it, while anything, any wine we make or the gin may not be everybody's cup of uh, crushed, crushed leaves and hot water, um, <laughs> it... Uh, uh, it at least speaks the truth um, from your own personal perspective. And that's really all I was trying to do is really just get out of the way and let these beautiful grapes and terroir um, speak for themselves without us really doing anything to try to make them into something to please anybody in particular. Um, we were just doing it because we loved it. And in the end, as I said, the only way I can go to bed at night is knowing that we're selling something that we actually love ourselves. We're not just making it so we can sell it. Yeah, that makes all the difference in the world. I often say, well, people tell me you're so good at selling wine or gin or whatever. And I'm like, I'm, I'm just saying what I love. I'm telling you about this product that I personally can really get behind. That makes all the difference in the world. Makes it easy. So what made you jump from wine to creating a gin? Obviously it's something that you love, but it just seems kind of like a, a big leap from fine California wines into a European gin. What was that leap like? Well, uh, that leap was first taken by one of my closest friends who lives in Bozeman, Montana. We're business partners and a bunch of different things. Uh, we are both avid fly fishermen, and Iceland is known for a, a run of a specific type of salmon called an Atlantic salmon that, that live in the ocean in the saltwater, but come up into freshwater rivers to spawn their uh, digestive systems, their bodies change while they're going from salt to fresh. They lay their eggs in their ancestral grounds and can swim hundreds of miles up upriver. Um, and then they return to the ocean and go back to living in a saltwater environment and do it year after year. And um, for fly fishing enthusiasts uh, or, or maniacs in my case, uh, it, it is one of the grandest pursuits. And one of my close friends went over and fished with a guide who was an amateur distiller and who ended up being one of the co-founders of the company and, um, and, and principal architect in the, uh, the original formula and the branding of it. Wow. And um, Roger brought it 
uh, to me and asked me to get involved. And I said, well, I'm from the wine business, but I have met a lot of people who are the same buyers as you are uh, for wine and for spirits. And I said, I have a lot of relationships that I think can come in handy. And so I became one of the partners and uh, um, ultimately agreed to run the business and expand it through the U.S. And you were one of the first people I showed it to um, in the country. So now we're, I think, up to 16 states or so and uh, uh, another probably 10 or 12 countries uh, around Europe. And it's super exciting. Um, This gin has become the top selling gin in the country of Iceland. It outsells global brands like Tanqueray and Hendrix and, you know, you Gordon's, Beef Eaters, Bombay, whatever. Uh, Olafsson is the drink of choice in, um, in Iceland. And it's, uh, it's wonderful. Um, and we are having a terrific response to it around the world. So I, what I found very similar um, between the businesses is the purity of what you're, we're trying to do. Um, the reason you can sip this gin from my perspective, or that I can sip it at least, uh, is that it isn't overly anything. It's It allows, um, you know, gin is, uh, as in any spirit, is, unless it's uh, those crazy high proof things, it's, um, it's mostly water. So you might as well have the best water in the planet, um, as your main ingredient and why hide it with a bunch of aggressive techniques that create other flavors rather than featuring the core beauty of what's what's inside of it and is the largest component of it and that's the same philosophy we take with the wine you know just get out of the way and let the ingredients speak for themselves and present it in a way that doesn't club you over the face uh as as you said earlier, Justin, you know, we don't want to be the ugly American um, winemaker version of an ugly American tourist. And we don't want to be the um, the aggressive, overly botanical, um, uh, medicinal uh, gin producer. So it's really the same philosophy, just with two different, completely different products and yeah, processes. I, I should know how to say cheers in Icelandic, but I don't. Do you know what what's the word? say skull skull i will drink to that because this is some damn fine gin thank you now it sounds not exactly a rags to riches story but certainly a very exciting series of events and stories that led to the creation of these brands i'm sure it wasn't smooth sailing all the way was there any particular hurdle or obstacle that you met up against or had to overcome Oh, yeah. Uh, I I mean, um, I'd say the number one obstacle to any producer is is uh, getting is getting carriage in the portfolios of distributors around the country. And these are individual, um, you know, tightly controlled companies that manage the brands that they sell and don't want to be overly saturated in one or more particular kinds of wines or, or spirits and uh, convincing a distributor that they should bring on a new brand when they're trying to, uh, I guess, move products that that uh, are, are easily moved rather than have to be launched and explained to everybody. Mm-hmm 
creates the biggest hurdle of all. And it, it I think, is the hurdle that that suppresses the growth of a lot of creative brands that are out there. You know, we're not all uh, George Clooney and Randy Gerber uh, with billionaire buddies who can start up uh, Casamigos and sell it for more billions. Uh, the rest of us chickens have to wear out our our uh, shoe leather. Now, I'm an experienced business guy. Um and I'm not shy and I've traveled all over the place. And so I don't mind um, uh, having having the word no said to me. Um, I, I do mind jaded people, as I said, and I run into plenty of those. But it, the, the uh, experience of getting distribution as a startup winery uh, was, I would, I would describe it as laborious. Um, and fortunately, we don't make that much wine, so I don't need that much distribution. Uh, most of our business is through our mailing list and our wine club, nice. uh, through our website. But uh, distribution gets your wine out into restaurants and retailers like your yourself and uh, gives us a chance to expose people to it who didn't find their way to our, our tiny little website. Ah. <laughs> and yeah, for... Everyone listening, we will link it in the show notes, but you can always follow Andrew and his projects at Withers Winery and at Olifson Gin. Again, we will link those in the show notes. Um, next question. What are future goals and plans for your brands? Do you have any new products in the works? Are you interested in creating different styles of spirits? Uh, what's on the horizon? Yeah, well, actually, um, all of the above. Uh, so in Iceland, we make a few products that we haven't exported, and we're expanding that line. We make uh, canned seltzers at 45 and 2% alcohol, one for grocers, one for the government-owned liquor stores. Uh, those will not come over here, but we're launching some new flavors, but... Um, since uh, our the wine that put us on the map uh, with the Withers was our rosé, mm. um, we are making a rosé gin, and that will launch uh, probably I think around July first. Uh, might not make it over to the states until August or so, just in time for gin and tonic season uh, late in the on those lazy summer afternoons. But um, that is being made with our of course, our core product uh, and some indigenous Icelandic berries, uh, the Icelandic version of a huckleberry mm. uh, and uh, also something called a crowberry. And that will provide color, uh, texture on your palate and aromatics and flavor. So it's not just a tinted gin. Uh, we're redesigning the label right now to um to uh obviously distinguish it uh the color is beautiful it looks much like our our rosé from the withers that mm. kind of uh, salmon copper kind of color and it is an absolute beauty and i can't wait to bring that uh, over here to the u.s and launch it throughout europe and um on the and then we will launch a vodka uh, probably the end of this year, all under the Olafson label and all to be available in the U.S. Ooh, and for wines, um, I am going to change things up a little bit. We the rosé is the wine that put us on the map. We use very particular varietals for that, 
uh, that are originally from the Rhone Valley, principally Grenache and Morvedra, but also Senso and Cunois. And um, I uh, uh, made a special wine two years ago when my first grandchild uh, was born. And uh, she just left here yesterday after being here for a week. So my, my heart's pretty full right now. <laughs> um, her name is Alice. And I um, uh, uh, I created a, a special cuvee of rosé made from 100% Pinot Noir that I just called Cuvee Alice. And um, we drank most of it. But uh, I did, <laughs> did sell some of it to uh, uh, some of my best customers. And they all went bananas <laughs> So um, starting this year, I'm going to, I just did it once. I've done a number of wines once. I did it something for my mother when she passed away that, that was very highly regarded that I've never repeated. And I did this rosé for Alice in 2020, but it's going to become an annual thing starting this year. So we'll have two different rosés oh. and uh, I'm pretty excited about that. Oh, well, congratulations. That's very what? cool. When you say we drank it, you don't mean you and Alice, and you mean you and others. Yeah, they, uh, it's the royal we, which is me. So. <laughs> Andrew drank it all. I shared a little. But Just triple checking. I'm. We don't. Uh, we don't condone. Actually, we do. We condone everything here. So fuck it. Yeah. Um, do what you got to do. So. <laughs> Just drink responsibly. I mean, people have given children alcohol over millennia. Yes. Okay, Justin, don't call yourself out there. Okay. <laughs> no, no, I haven't given children out. I was given. Oh. My my grandfather. Oh, it was five or six, maybe. He was drinking um. Uh, bourbon, uh, whiskey. Just, I don't remember what it was exactly, but you know, he's like, try it, thinking that I would hate it. I was like, oh, this is pretty interesting, and that didn't set me on a path or anything, but. Well, you were already a degenerate by that age, I'm sure. I was definitely a degenerate by like four. That's that's a hundred percent. Me too, my friend. Yeah. My mom, I we, we uh my wife and I were on the cruise. We actually wound up taking my mom and, and stepfather. And there were stories shared, things I'd forgotten about from you know thirty some odd years ago. So nice. A lot of that. But that's uh, cool. hmm. couple final um, questions. What is one piece of advice you'd give to someone starting out in this field or career? You're obviously a businessman with decades of experience and now a lot of industry experience under your belt. Is there any one piece of advice that sticks out or you think would be most beneficial? Yes, uh, well, a couple things. Um, I, I'd say the... Uh, the number one thing is about your personal conviction with what you're making. Um, and, and to me, it doesn't really matter what you're making. If you're making it because you love making it and you appreciate the end product yourself rather than making it as a commodity to sell, to me, that is the core, I guess, asset that you have when you, I mean, the product has to speak for itself for mm -hmm. sure. Um, but it's the conviction and the, and the um, I guess, the promise that you're going to make something to the best of your ability rather than, you know, please a particular critic or palate or something 
um, or some market segment that is lacking. To me, that's the difference between what matters and what doesn't. It that doesn't translate always into financial success, but it. I think my um, I'm old enough to have the perspective, I guess, that that doesn't the money doesn't matter as much as the conviction, I guess. Mm -hmm. So that would be number one. The second would be um, don't believe your own bullshit. So if you, uh, you know, get a, a high score or like us, our rosé a month after we launched was on that cover of the Wall Street Journal that went oh, wow. global and uh, you know got named one of the top rosés in the world and uh it's easy to let that stuff get to your head and um uh i thought oh this is going to be easy uh we got in the wall street journal and the new york times and uh, this critic and that critic it's not easy so uh, it takes an enormous amount of effort and 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 the other piece of advice is related to that it's it's all about showing up um if I relied on all my distributors to go present uh, my wines around, uh, I would, I'm sure, have gotten somewhere. But it's the fact that that I wanted to be present and to help and uh, to be able to tell the story behind it that, to me, made the difference between um, succeeding and not succeeding. So those would be the two major pieces of advice. Care about it and show up. Nice. That's awesome. All right. That's uh, as someone who is in the industry on the sales side, <laughs> super jaded. Um, everything you say makes sense, sir. So um, we certainly appreciate you coming on and talking to us today. Um, and we are definitely looking forward to, to to figuring out how to how to taste those wines. So we'll we'll work on that and we'll get back to our audience with how, how hopefully amazing they are. So great. appreciate um, it. Oh yeah, they're uh, amazing. Probably one of the best rosés I've ever had. And oh, uh, God, you, you just go on about your wines. I think sometime in season two, I that was one of my what's in my glass was something from the Withers, and I'm like, fuck yes, oh, okay. So well, don't don't miss. I we made very little. We've gotten pounded by fires uh, the last three years, and it has restricted our production around twenty percent of our usual levels. So I. Yes. haven't been able to send much out through the wholesale channel. And so I would um, sign up for some because it's uh, it's it's a week or two away and um, it's going to go quickly. So grab some. Uh, where can people sign up for your list? Well, our list is our, our mailing list is um, just at the withers .com. You can sign up for our list. And you will get uh, occasional emails from me, which are mostly pictures of my granddaughter and uh, occasional um, tidbits about what wines are are being released. We have a wine club and um, that has two shipments a year that's themed after uh, music and in particular vinyl records that I love. Oh, cool. Because I do have uh, musicians who are partners in the winery. The Kings of Leon are partners. Um and a guitarist uh, named Derek Trucks and his wife, Susan Tedeschi, are all partners in it. And so uh, uh, combining music, uh, horses, uh, and the equestrian arts, you can see Mr. Burgess, the oil painting that is on our label, that is hanging in our living room. I got to combine the things my wife and our daughters love and and uh, the things that my son and I love. And uh, 
um, and put music on top of it and, and mix it all up together. And look where we are sitting here on a podcast. Oh, yeah. I've now I've now popped my podcast cherry. I've never done one before. Oh, congratulations. We're so glad it was ours. I hope it was as good for you as it was for us. <laughs> Whoa, Justin. <laughs> well, thanks to the Ramblers uh, for joining us here in uh, season three. Uh, I'm Justin uh, signing off uh, on behalf of Julia and our special guest, Andrew. Um, don't forget to join our uh, Swing and Ramble Facebook pages, Instagrams, Twitters, whatever, Snap Faces, whatever you call them. Go, go to all the socials, um, follow all the channels. Um, you can follow um, Andrew and his brands at uh, at the uh, Withers Winery and at Olufsen Gin. Uh, you can also go to the website and join uh, their their wine club. And um, yeah, Julia, do you want to you want to bring us home? Yeah. Uh, Andrew, again, thank you so much for joining us. It was an absolute pleasure. So glad we were able to pop your podcast, Cherry. And all of you ramblers, be sure to join us next time when we discuss those assholes who only want leaf soup. (laughs) Oh, a little dig at the end. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time. Download almost anywhere. Join our Facebook group. And follow us at Swig and Ramble on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook and Twitter for more fermented fuckery. Cheers!